Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. You mentioned, you know, your family when we first started talking about your childhood, manhood, fatherhood. You are both of those, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, man and father yeah. and, and husband and all that. So in what ways has, you know, your angel investing or experience in this, you know, tech venture ecosystem and what positive ways has it impacted you as a family man, as a father, wow. as all of those things? That's a really good question, man. So I definitely have become a better like storyteller, I think. And I think that honestly, storytelling is probably one of the skills that makes you a better father that people don't realize, right? So being able to take a concept that's kind of philosophical, right? Or theoretical and being able to like connect that to an actual real thing that people can visualize is really important. And it's probably one of the ways that I've improved is being able to take this concept that I really want my son to internalize and trying to bring it down to his level. And we were sort of having this conversation last night about failure and how like failure helps you to be compassionate for other people who haven't quite gotten there yet, right? And so um, my manager is really good at this. He knows the answer, but he kind of wants me to get there on my own. So he's like, yeah, you know, so we've got this problem. I kind of think I know the solution, but I want you to kind of figure it out and like and tell me what you think is the best solution. So I think that that experience has also made me more compassionate, right? And ultimately has helped me to understand better methods to get us to a desired goal. That is... Simply brilliant. <laughs> Just to go back to your angel investing you know, thesis, we'll call it is, you know, you really looking at a team at the pre-seed stage, uh, co-founder, you know, your marriage in both of those mm. relationships, there's a commitment to see it through to the end. Yeah. So when you're looking at, you know, your founder team that you are considering uh, investing in and you are going to design them from scratch or look for one key thing that is present. What is that thing that has to be there? Just talk about the team dynamics that you're looking for when you're evaluating these teams. And it could be informed by your own experience on your own marital team. Clear definition of roles and understanding like who's good at what is key. If I was thinking about the perfect co-founder team, I think that there are a few sort of intangible things that you need. So obviously... You know, if we're talking about a tech product or, or some tech implementation, someone you got to have a builder. Right. I think that you also need someone who's sort of like a charismatic leader. Right. So so much of pitching and sales is really just relationship building and like pure charisma. Right. Like just being able to walk into a room and make people believe in what it is that you're selling, right? Like that is such a big part of that. And so there's got to be a charismatic leader, right? Someone who can pitch, someone who can sell. I think in all of your co-founders, there needs to be a level of like resiliency and the ability to do hard work, right? So, I mean, I work for Google, but this, this happens a lot with people that work for Google and then start their own companies or work for you know, some fang company, right? Is that I call it the curse of the competent. Most of the time, people that work for these fang organizations are superstars, right? So, you know, working at one of these organizations, if you're a techie or really any professional, it's kind of like going to the league. You know what I mean? It's like you've hit the big time, right? And so you and everything around you is sort of confirming this fact that you are smart and you're you know, you're talented and you're you're one of the best of the best. Right. Startup culture is basically hearing a thousand no's to get to a yes. Right. And so it's people telling you that your idea sucks. It's people telling you that you should go back. And, you know, so I think that, you know, a lot of times when I'm looking for a co-founder or when I'm looking at a founding team, that curse of the competent can sometimes like people who are really brilliant, they deliver in those environments oftentimes cannot make the switch right to the mental switch to go and work for a startup because you're just constantly working. You've got to work through a lot 
There are so many roadblocks that are going to come up, so many people that are going to tell you no. And sometimes when you're used to being the smartest person in the room and used to high salaries and you're used to winning all the time, like it takes a it's just a different world and it's a different mind state. And I've seen it happen. Like I actually got asked to be a part of a startup and I'm glad that I said no, because two months later, they didn't exist anymore. Right. And the guy who was the technical he was the guy who was building this thing. You know, he went to go work at AWS, right? I mean, he's one of the most brilliant people that I've ever seen in my life, but he doesn't have the right attitude to go and work for a startup, right? Like, cause he, you know, was tired of investors saying no to him, right? But they had only talked to 50 investors, right? Like maybe 75. It's like, bro, this is a long game. If you can't stand that, like, and I'm glad that they kind of dissolved it. So those are kind of the things that I would look for is like, people know who they are and why they're there. There needs to be a charismatic leader who knows how to sell, who knows how to pitch. Another thing that I would say is just like the lingo that you're using, right? Like when you start talking about total addressable markets and you've got a plan for scale and, you know, you're kind of using these terms that I've come to realize are associated with this certain kind of thinking when it comes to a startup, I can see that you're already thinking in the right direction, right? And somebody's got to be doing that. So those are kind of my like, my little signals to know like, you know, all right, y'all are going to be together for a while and y'all are serious about this. That's good. And it reminds me of a panel that I attended in Nashville, Tennessee, where uh, a local seed venture firm was doing data on what they saw early on and then fast forward to the companies that actually made it to IPO. Mm. And there were all these quantitative reasons that we can get into later. But the one I asked a question, I said, OK, that's the quantitative what about the qualitative things that you mm. are seeing? And there was only one. And that one thing was self-awareness. Is that something that's mm. relevent to you when you're assessing? If oh, so, talk yeah, about man. that. Like, so, uh, you know, when I think about the companies that really impress me, uh, it is the companies that uh, know where their weaknesses are and they have a plan for like how they're going to solve for that, right? Like they know where their gaps are. Um, I think that, Having clear and defined roles is also important, but you only get there by being self-aware, right? Like knowing what it is that you bring, what you're good at, what you're not good at. And then that allows you to find people that sort of compliment you in those ways. Uh, I think that's also important personally, man. Like recently, uh, speaking of Kelsey Hightower, you know, so he gave me a piece of advice and it was really more like a challenge. And he was kind of like, like, who are you? Right. And so I'm like asking him, I'm, I'm giving him an answer, but he's kind of like, eh, you're telling me what you do. You're not telling me who you are. Right. And then he recommended this book by Ray Dalio. So Ray Dalio is, you know, like the founder of what's that? It's a uh, Bridgewater. Bridgewater. Right. And anyway, the book is called Principles. And it's really just about like, you know, his principles. Right. Like life principles and his work principles. And the reason why he wrote that book is because he realized like that most of the friction that we have in our lives and at work are because we're working with people who don't know or who have different principles than ours. So it's really important for you to understand what your principles are. And everybody should sort of go through this exercise of defining what their principles are. Right. And so I've started doing it myself. So, you know, the self-awareness piece understanding your own understanding of the world, right? And how you approach it and how you view it, knowing when you meet someone who may have a different sort of take on that, right? And it doesn't mean that y'all can't work together, but it means that y'all have to discuss it so that y'all both know where you're coming from. Like y'all need to be self-aware enough to know who you are and what your principles are and why you're starting this thing. What's your breaking point, right? Like one thing that I think we oftentimes discuss are metrics related to success and how do we know when we should be continuing. But one thing we don't ever talk about is, well, how do we know when we should quit? What things, if we don't see them in a year, are indicators that we should stop this company or stop this thing that we're trying to do? And I think that sometimes we don't talk about that, but all of those are like self-awareness, man, and you got to have it. And I think if you're going to do a startup, y'all got to have that for sure. So what are some principles? It doesn't have to be your long laundry list, but you know, what is a principle that you hold sort of dear to you that flows through not just the topic today, but your life? You know, we've covered a lot of ground here professionally, angel investing, you know, your family. What is a principle that you would 
want others to know that that's something that you're not going to budge on. So far, I think I've really gotten four. What you don't do is sometimes more important than what you do. Building is very important in our lives, but like sculpting is also important. Sort of taking things away. It's not always about the doors we walk through. Sometimes it's about the doors we close. Knowing when to cut off a toxic relationship. A practical example of it is fitness. 80% of the results that you see is because of diet, right? Like the things you choose not to eat versus just going to the gym. A lot of discipline is knowing what not to do, knowing not to get into a conversation and letting it take you down a certain path. So that's a, a big principle of mine. Direction over speed. Less about how quickly we get there and more that we're just kind of going in the the direction that we should. I think Simon Sinek said this one time, right? You know, like there's all these clips floating on Instagram, but that one was really impactful. He's like, you know, you go to the gym today, you come back and look in the mirror, nothing's changed. You do that again, the next day, nothing's changed. And you can do that for months and you don't see any changes. But one thing that is for sure is that if you keep working out, eventually you see the results, right? And you know that you're going to be in shape. And I think the same is true, right? Like of really anything that we're doing in our lives. Incremental change at small, in small, you know, increments is really what's important, right? Another one for me is like success isn't really about attainment as much as like distance. You know what I mean? So like I define success much more about like how far I go versus like what I attain. You know, going back to again, the angel investing like for me, it's just an exercise in how far can I push this? How far can I stretch the concept of who I am? Um, so, yeah, like, you know, I, again, I come from a place where a lot of people don't know about this. Right. And so it's exciting for me to to go along this journey. And my fourth one, and this is as far as I've gotten right now, deep relationships only. Right. Like. So the people that I choose to have in my life are people that I have and I want to have deep connection with. I'm at a point where I don't really need surface relationships anymore, you know, and if I can't be my full self and I can't bring my full self to a situation, then I probably won't be around you too much. Right. Like and so for me, I'm very intentional about building deep relationships. And then as a subtext to that principle, being radically authentic, right? Like, and radically honest is uh, how you build those relationships, right? So for me, again, like I want to be radically authentic, right? So I don't ever want to, you know, out, outside of just like manners and decorum, right? Like I don't really filter myself, you know, like I'm who I am all the time, you know? And I think that what that does is it allows for people to see me, right, and to see how I am. And then when I am being radically honest, they don't take it as offensive because they know that that's just how I am, right? And so those are the principles that I have so far, right? Like more to come, but like, and I'm actively involved in like defining these principles because then, and, and as I'm defining them, I'm also looking back on relationships that I've had with people and realize why there may have been conflict, right? Because everybody doesn't care about having deep relationships, right? Like, which then means they don't necessarily treat me the way that I would treat them, right? Everybody doesn't necessarily define success. Like most people define success in attainment. How much stuff do I have? How, how much money can I accrue, right? And like, but that motivates their actions. And so now that I'm understanding this about myself and like, really challenging myself to figure out, you know, what, what, how do I approach the world? Now I can sort of evaluate people based on these principles too. And now I can, and it gives me a better understanding of them. And then I know how to also deal with them or why I may have like, why my energy doesn't agree with theirs. Cause we're not, we're just not on the same we're not on the same frequency. So it's been really helpful. Totally. And I'm glad that we went deeper there because it's important to take the time to appreciate, understand your principles, others. And I love everything that you said about that. It has more of a long term view, which is what we talked about last night. The yeah. legacy, what that means, what's different. Uh, but speaking of attainment and acquisition, let's say that you do have a million dollars in, you know, no strings attached funding. Mm -hmm. uh, it came to you and you have 
to deploy it in some kind of capacity, in some kind of way. We've been talking about angel investing, but this is broadly speaking. We want yeah, to get a better yeah. sense of if a million dollars comes to you, what happens to it? A uh, million dollars comes to me. What do I do? I would take 500 of that and create like that would be my money to angel invest. Right. Like I think for sure I'm going to take 500,000 of that right now and use that to strategically invest in companies, right? And probably do that in combination with other more experienced people. So like, you know, I would then probably work with Bag and say, hey, I got five, I I got 250, you know, and and we're gonna like, you know, I've got that money for us to deploy. How can we use that to, you know, further this thing that we're building, right? And I would probably take another 250 of that and reach out to Andy and probably you as well, right? Like, and I would say, all right, now we got a quarter mil. How do we use that to grow this thing that you're trying to grow, right? And then I would take that other half a million. And to be honest, I think right now what I would do is I would probably acquire a business. You know what I mean? Like, I think that I would. So I've been I've been um, probably for the last year and a half, maybe two years, learning more about acquisition, entrepreneurship and acquisition as a way to get cash flow. Right. And I mean, Google does this, all you know, all of these bigger companies and private equity firms. That's essentially what they're doing is they're taking businesses that are already generating money. Right. And then they're acquiring those and growing them. And maybe sometimes they sell them again or maybe sometimes they just keep it as a, a, uh, you know, cash flowing asset for them. But I would probably take another half a million or maybe a quarter of a million and acquire a business and then grow it. I'm trying to create freedom for myself. Right. And freedom in the sense of like I am location independent and, you know, not really, you know, working for like I don't even know if I would quit my job right now, to be honest, because I'm learning so much like it's not even really about the money but I have access to so much and I'm learning so much. I don't even think I would quit, but I do think that that half a million would allow me to create a revenue generating asset and I could have an operator running it. And I'd also get that experience of like what it's like to acquire a business. So that experience would be priceless. I think for me, very insightful and in the lineage of the late Reginald Lewis. Mm, uh, Yeah, man. Baltimore. Classic, classic book, bro. All about, (laughs) You know, entrepreneurship through acquisition. Yeah. He's grown. I think it was Beatrice Foods that was like yeah, one to ninety x or something like yeah. that. So it's definitely a model to consider uh, in this space here. So speaking about kind of other people that we look to who have come before us and did it in a way we want to emulate. Mm. Since you've been angel investing, and maybe since you've been an entrepreneur yourself, what's the most profitable? piece of advice that you have received. People are, you know, giving advice all the time, but which advice have you received that actually led to an improvement in your own bottom line? Let me think on that for a second. That's actually a really interesting question, man. I think uh, I think the most profitable piece of advice that I've ever received is competent people have to learn how to scale. And what that means is that if you really, really want to like increase your bottom line, then you've got to work on the business and not in the business. Right. But that requires you to delegate and that presents you with a challenge because nobody's going to be able to do what you do, how you do it. Right. But in order for you to really scale, you've got to come to terms with that reality. Right. That you cannot do the work and also, you know, work on the business. And that's really changed my approach. Right. So I have a, a web agency on the side. And actually, this ties into your self-awareness piece. Right. Like realizing, like, what is it that I actually really do in that business and what is the largest amount of value that I can bring? So I've realized that what I am really good at is building relationships and selling and also defining a direction for the company that we should we should go down. So, you know, we build apps, we do web design, you know, we do branding, all of those. At one point I did all of those functions, right? But I've learned that like I can outsource that to other people. And what that allows for me to do is to focus on bringing the money in the door, right? Now, there's a whole lot of skills that I've had to learn since I had that realization, like, 
you know, being able to create standard operating procedures so that I can still get the thing done and have like quality control and make sure that it's a certain, you know, there's a certain level of quality, right? Having weekly check-ins with my people and becoming more of a leader, more of a manager than I am like a doer. There's just a cap on how much you can do as an individual person. And you've got to come to terms with the fact that yes, you're high performing. Nobody's gonna be able to do what you do, how you do it, but that's okay. Super duper insightful from you personally. Let's go back to a macro view, at least in our community neighborhood here. So we're sitting in our Huntsville, Alabama studio here right. in your home here in Madison and all that good stuff. Uh, let's talk about Huntsville because you came here from elsewhere. You've seen more of the country, more of the world, really, yeah. which we are going to cover a little bit later. But what is Huntsville like for somebody who doesn't have really a clue oh, about man. that? I mean, the last time that I was here, I mentioned to you last night, was back in elementary school where I was here for space. Camp and that was amazing. Right. It's a huge aerospace community here. Mm -hmm. But just talk about what the vibe is like. I mean, it's not what you think. Uh, at least it wasn't <laughs> for me. Uh, it's a very thriving, growing you know, area, metropolitan area here. But talk about the startup ecosystem here, if you can, and generally speaking, what it's like to have moved your family here. Yeah, man. So Huntsville is really vibrant, and there is a lot of fertile ground for growth, right? Like I really see compiling energy here. And I think that there are all of the ingredients to create like a, a thriving ecosystem. Just on a general level. So as you mentioned, Huntsville is actually a really smart place. One of the statistics that you will often hear from people in Huntsville, and they will let you know this, is that Huntsville has more PhDs per capita than any place in the, in the United States. NASA's here. Redstone Arsenal is here, which is like our, it's one of our largest missile defense bases. So who is our, you mean the country? Uh, as in the United States, excuse me. So there are literal like rocket scientists here, right? Like lit literally. Blue Origins factory is here. So a lot of people don't know that, but you know, Jeff Bezos space business is space exploration business. Like they build their engines here in Huntsville. Boeing is here. General Dynamics is here. Army Corps of Engineers has one of the largest offices, one of the largest operations here in Huntsville. Facebook's here. There are so many smart people and all of those kind of attract. Raytheon is here. So, I mean, so many engineers. It's an engineering town and that trickles down into the school system. We've got like one of the best school systems in the country. So these are things that you don't think about when you think about Alabama, but Huntsville is sort of this like hidden gem. A lot of high earners here, a lot of really smart people here, which then means that there are, and it is an entrepreneurial community. So lots of people retire or just get tired of doing these government contracting engineering jobs and they've saved up their money. They've been smart financially and they will open up their own businesses, right? A lot of software developers here, lots of things like that. Now, with a little bit of education about the venture capital world and how you actually go about raising funds, there's actually the perfect climate to also start creating high growth startups here as well. Because, you know, there's just that requisite level of exposure that comes along with that education. People are already hard workers. They already know how to work in high stress situations where, you know, the stakes are really high. All of those are kind of like those intangible things that make, you know, really good uh, founders, right? And make really good businesses. Engineers have a way of thinking that I really like. Like they're, they think of things in systems. I feel like that's just a really good practice, right? And, and that's how you kind of figure out where problems are. So I think that uh, there's a lot of that in this town too. So I really love Huntsville. I like living here. Also, it's a growing city, but it's not like too city, right? So like I enjoy the big city, but like I also like a more like medium pace, right? Like, you know, the city can be a little bit um, like, you know, everybody's just faster, right? And I, and I love that. And there's a reason why innovation happens in bigger cities. But what I love about Huntsville is that, you know, I can get to Nashville in an hour and a half. I can get to Birmingham in an hour and a half. I can get to Atlanta 
in a three hour drive, I can get to Chattanooga, I can get to Memphis, I can get to New Orleans in like six hours. Right. And so I'm in this really good place of like also just being around all of these major cities while also living in a place that is still like kind of chill. And I think that's really good for raising my family. That was a soft, medium and hard sell all wrapped up <laughs> in the one, man. Uh, and I can attest that there is a a certain uh, aura, a vibe here. You can definitely tell that there are people who are doing well here and want to do well for others. Yeah. Didn't realize this city in particular is so integral to the United States. Oh, yeah, man. It's big, bro. It's like, uh, yeah, it was surprising to me. So dive into that deeper. So my wife and I, we're both from Savannah, but you know, my wife works for the Army Corps of Engineers. So when we were dating, she lived here. She's like, yeah, you know, come visit me. I mean, she was definitely like, if you can't do this long distance thing, if you can't hop on the road and come see me, let's not even date. Right. And I'm like, nah, I can do it. And, but definitely when she told me like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm in Alabama, I'm kind of like, mm. <laughs> You know, I'm just like, yeah, I don't know, Alabama, you know. And so, but when I got here, I've just been pleasant. You know, I've continued to be pleasantly surprised by what Huntsville is, man. And so it's a dope place. It is extremely integral to the country, extremely integral in a lot of different industries. And going back to the startup ecosystem, there are a lot of like entrepreneurs here. Most of the, you know, sort of successful entrepreneurs are somehow attached to the government, right? So there's a lot of government contracts type of businesses here. And so they're going after the government contracts, which makes sense, which could also be really good when you think about like creating startups, right? Like government contracts could absolutely be how you get most of your, your revenue, right? But it's just longer sales cycles, though, you know, just things we have to think about. Love that. <clears throat> so you like it here, love it here. They love you here too. That was clear last night with just how you know popular you are down here. Uh, but if you had to leave, you and your family, you pick up, you move your life elsewhere for whatever reason, what city, where would you go, particularly if you were trying to continue the upward trajectory in your startup ecosystem venture, angel mm. investing mindset, uh, lifestyle that you Bro, got going on. I'm gonna probably say Atlanta. Why? They're like the new city where everybody's paying attention, right? Like, so there's so much development happening in, in Atlanta. There's a major airport there, right? So I feel like if I'm gonna be in this VC startup game, like you gotta be able to travel to, you know, San Francisco, New York, like, you know, where it's popping. And so it has that, but honestly, man, Atlanta is growing in their venture community, their startup community. Like the development is crazy there. And so I would likely be in Atlanta kind of getting in the mix of things there. You know, being a Morehouse alum, I've got a network there. You know, I've also got people like uh, Asante Bradford and um, I've just got connected to Joey Womack, who does the Goody Nation thing and is on the Venture Atlanta board. And so, you know, there's just a lot going on there. Georgia Tech's there, Morehouse, Spellman, you know, Clark, the AUC, lots of Emory, just a lot of, it has all, again, all of those ingredients to make a really great place that's going to, and it's going to continue to grow. I mean, the film, film's going crazy out there right now. It is yet to be what I would call oversaturated, right? So still affordable in terms of you know, home prices and like just all of those things. It's not like going and living in San Francisco where you got to kind of like be a millionaire to have a normal life. Before you basically had to be in Silicon Valley, right? In order to like be in this game or New York. But now you can conduct a lot of business, you know, remotely, but face to face is still good. But Atlanta gives you travel. It's easy. So I would probably be in Atlanta for sure. I do love the South. I can't lie. I do as well. And you have you know, bounced around a little bit or have been willing to make big changes in your life, you know, physically, professionally. But if you could point to one moment in particular, a pivot that you made, a, a really big life changing decision that you feel like transformed your trajectory in your career, yeah. big or small, just talk about that. What would that be? It would definitely be choosing to go and live abroad. It's 2017. 
Me and my wife just got married. At this point, I'm working in economic development, right? In Savannah, manager of emerging industries. So really it's my job to sort of cultivate the technology ecosystem in Savannah. Attracting or trying to get like coding boot camps to come to the area. Because of course, workforce is really important when you're trying to attract companies, right? Like, why am I going to come to your city if there aren't people that will do the jobs that I need there? Well, if there not, aren't any developers, then why would I come, right? So we've got we've got the colleges, but you know they're all leaving and going other places. So I am in the boot camp while I'm getting married and going on my honeymoon and all this kind of stuff. So crazy time in my life. I finished the boot camp. Me and my wife have been talking about going and living abroad and how that would be just a great experience for us. She works for the government. She's like, well, I can apply for jobs anywhere. Right. Like we've got government base. You know, we've got bases and all these different operations that are happening everywhere. At that same time, after I go to this coding boot camp. So it's important to mention that I was self-taught, but like we all reach a point where. There's sort of this kind of like plateau or ceiling when you're teaching yourself how to do things and you realize that I need to go and learn from like have some formal education or learn from people. So that was kind of what this coding boot camp was for me. Right. I know that I want to switch jobs and go into tech. Right. And I apply and get a job working for 18F. Right. As a consulting software engineer. 18F is basically a digital agency that exists inside of the government. Started during the Obama administration. The whole idea is that we need to do a facelift and improve all of these customer facing applications and websites that government agencies are using. The best way for us to improve those quickly is to find people who work in the private sector and pay them high salaries to come in and help us work. I'm fresh out of this coding boot camp, but I've already got professional experience. At this point, I've already started and and shuttered my startup. You know, I've already ran a business. So I apply and go through, you know, this is my first like loop interview where I'm like, you know, doing coding challenges and doing multiple levels of interviews and I get the job, right? Boom, I got the job. My first six-figure job, right? I'm happy. My wife gets a acceptance notification that she's got a job in Bahrain. So now I've got to choose. And of course, my wife was like, well, you tell me what you want to do. I'm not going to make you turn down this job. What do you want us to do? So now I've got to choose between going out of the country and taking my first tech job as a consulting software engineer, six figure salary. So I decide for us to go to Bahrain. Right. And I'm like, OK, well, worst case scenario, like I've proven that I can get this job. Right. Like I can get another one. Worst case scenario, I go to Bahrain. I don't find anything to do. And I just have this great experience for two years of my life where, you know, our bills are paid for and. You know, like it's an experience, right? My son gets to go. My wife gets like we're never the same. Best case scenario is that I go here and I find something that is amazing and it changes my life. Like I've always sort of believed that I was the kind of person that could go anywhere and find an opportunity. Right. Like that's always how I felt about myself. And this was a good test. Right. Like to figure out if I was who I thought I was. Right. And so we take the opportunity and go to Bahrain. And I go there with no idea what I'm going to do. Right. None. Just I'm just like, we're going to go. Right. Like my wife's got a job. We'll go. So we get there in May. By July. Right. Like I've networked enough and now I've got this job and it is the job that changes my whole life. So uh, I meet this guy. American has lived in the UK for 10 years started a company called Dree. They just got through doing like some AWS migration work for the UK government. They get invited to this accelerator that's happening in Bahrain because Bahrain is AWS is building a AWS data center in Bahrain to open up another region. So they're trying to, you know, get service providers to come and be a part of this thing. The Bahraini government decides that they're going to move all of their 
on-premises workloads to the cloud and to AWS. So I meet this guy who, and he's just got this contract to move one third of those of, of the entire Bahraini government into the cloud. So that's 75 government ministries. And then, so he hires me to be the program manager for that, right? So I know nothing about AWS at this time. Like nothing, right? Like just a little bit, right? Like I've heard of S3, you know, but like I don't know anything. And he's like, hey, you'll learn it. You're technical, but you also know how to work with people. You'll learn it. That changed everything for me, right? Like that. I would not be at Google. I would have not been at AWS. So, you know, we do this project, right? Like it kind of ends funky, right? Like the <laughs> business practices can be a little shady over there. So, so ultimately what happens is that this telecom company is basically like using us to do the strategy and like, you know, but, at, but simultaneously they are hiring their own staff to do this. At, so as we're walking them through this process, they're learning from us, but ultimately they create their own program and they actually offer me a job and try to take me from the company that I'm working for, right? So it ends contentiously, but I learned so much during this process. And I realized that like cloud is a thing, right? Like this is the future. And so after that, you know, I get, I get my cloud practitioner cert, you know, I start learning more about AWS. After that, I continue my learning and eventually I get the job as a technical trainer at AWS. And that is what spurs everything else. Like, you know, me working at AWS and getting that deep, 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 deep understanding of AWS and cloud and building and, you know, teaching others how to do it. Meeting Leslie and meeting all these other people is like what changes my life. And so like, if I would not have made that decision to forego the six-figure salary and kind of go into the the abyss of the unknown, right? Then I wouldn't be where I am today. And it changed, it seems, who you are in a way. Uh, so talk about what changes did happen with you as a human being when you were over there because, you know, I've spent some time overseas too, you know, spent about 10 months in the UK, was able to do a little bit of traveling, not as much as mm -hmm. you have. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I learned is that there are some things you can only learn when you leave your home country, no matter wherever that is. So talk about how it was transformative for you, you know, maybe on the business side, on the personal side, culturally. I mean, oh, one of the man. reasons we had to pause this podcast was because of the coffee. and You showed me all the videos about the coffee, all these experiences that you've had uh, overseas. Just talk a little bit more about, you know, what fond memories that you have that are going to stay with you forever? Oh, man, bro. So there's so much that I could say. The first thing that you realize is like how many assumptions you have about what's right and natural and like just things that you take for granted because they're culturally embedded in the story that, you know, you've been told since you were born. And you realize that all of these things are just kind of like cultural choices. Right. And so. The, the probably one of the most impactful things that I've learned is that like there are more ways to live than just what we've been taught. Ultimately, we're all just people and we're all the exact same. Like we may do things a little differently, but we all want the same things. You made the comment of like, you know, how hospitable I have been right since you've been here. But so one of the things that I picked up is there's having company and then there's like receiving people. One of the things that I've really respected about being in the Middle East is that they know how to receive their guests, right? Like when you come into their home, like you are going to, like they're going to have food out for you. You know, they're going to treat you like you're a special guest. And so I've tried to do that. But understanding that has helped me just to sort of like now that I have this different point of orientation, like when I'm dealing with Middle Easterners, like I know that I have to change the way that I speak a little bit because there's a lot of formality there. Like they they don't just jump straight into business, right? Whereas Americans, we are very to the point, we get right down to it immediately, right? Like, so just having that understanding, I think allows for me to meet people from different cultures and meet them where they are. Let's pause right here because you just reminded me of something. I had a really great colleague, student, uh, friend, classmate, and you know, 
I'm not advocating for this, but we would go to these shisha lounges. Oh, and yeah, one of the things did that. Definitely. And one of the things that she said was that, you know, in some cultures, I won't give the specific country, but you know, there was this idea that it would be like, oh, I'll pick up the bill. No, you pick up the bill. Oh, no, you, yeah. You're supposed to go back and forth like absolutely. a certain number of times, absolutely. but it's understood who ultimately is going to pay yeah, and absolutely. stuff like that. So talk about like those types of interactions that you have. Yeah, man. So you definitely will go through that, right? Which kind of goes back to the hospitality and guests and all that kind of stuff. So there really isn't splitting the bill in these other places, right? Like, no, they just pay the bill, right? Like, you know, you go to different places and you're going to argue about the bill like it's sort of it's sort of understood that you're going to haggle prices too. you go and buy something, you know, in America, maybe in the West. Right. Like we're just kind of like, OK, that's the price tag. This is what we pay. Right. Whereas in other countries, like it's expected kind of that you're going to haggle back and forth. And um, I actually have become better at negotiating, right? Like um, because of that, right? Like just the practice of doing that has made me better at like negotiating and and but doing so in a non-adversarial kind of way, right? Um, so there are these little things that you just pick up on being more polite, you know, like just generally, you know, asking, how's your family? You know, how are you? You know, just things that we don't typically do. But they are indicators. They're indicators of like who you are. Right. And so just understanding that signaling that we all do and that you do in different cultures and how we all signal different things, you know, in different cultures has been really eye opening. And I think like helpful in like, you know, my future interactions. Just to connect our conversation from earlier, did it prompt you to cut anything out of how you interact with the world when you got back? Oh, yeah, man. So. I think as Americans, we're always sort of walking around with our fists balled up, sort of on guard, you know, and so all of our interactions, particularly with people who we don't already know, are like, there's always this hint of like, what the hell do you want from me? Right. And then maybe you warm up. Whereas in other countries, like, you know, what you what you realize immediately is that, like, you don't have to walk around that way. And maybe it's a sign of the times or just sort of the way that we're constantly being taught to be fearful of our neighbors and be fearful of people. Um, And everything is just kind of so adversarial in our country. But it's not really like that. Right. Like when I'm when I was in, you know, like I got the chance to travel while I was, you know, based in Bahrain. So, you know, we went to. Thailand and we went to Bali and we went to Greece and we went to Ghana and we, you know, went to Malaysia and all these different places. And like we were safe, you know what I mean? And like some of the best interactions that I had were just with complete strangers, man, and people buying me drinks and me buying them drinks and like being able to learn more about their culture because I had had someone, a local being able to, you know, talk to me and tell me a little bit more and give me more insight. And those things only happened because I was open to that interaction. Well, t- talk more about that. How did you become so friendly to where you can go into a place where you know zero souls and come out of there with sort of your own personal tour guide to be respectful? When we got off that plane, me, my wife, and my son, everybody in that country was a stranger to us, right? And so once again, we had to start from scratch with building our network and kind of like learning the lay of the land. And even though we were connected to the base there, the naval base, literally everyone was a stranger. And so we had to start over from scratch. So I think that that experience made me realize that like, number one, you don't really realize how much we're relying on the kindness of people just day to day and just blind trust until you have to like go back to doing that. Like literally, is this person taking me where I say I want to go? Right. Like you are literally putting the safety of yourself and your family in the hands of someone that you don't know, right? In a place where you don't even know where to run to if there is danger, right? So literally just going abroad made me realize that like the only way to get opportunity and the only way to to have safety and truly like belonging is to be open to the stranger, Um, And I've met so many people from Bahrain and so many people from all these different places that I've been who have helped me to learn and helped me to navigate and helped me just live my life. And so I think that that experience has now, again, 
just made me open whenever I'm somewhere like my first indication is not like to be closed off and to be suspicious. Right. Because what is the risk that you take versus what's the reward that you get? Like, what's the risk? So the risk is I don't know what this person wants some money for me. Maybe they want to cause me physical harm in my life. I feel like that's rare. That's that's kind of the exception. Right. Is that somebody wants to do you physical harm? I've been in enough experiences in my life to where I know that even if that is the case, right, like I know how to handle myself, right? Or if they want to do extreme violence, there's nothing that I can do about that anyway, right? But what I stand to gain from those interactions is so much more, right? I can gain a friend, a business partner, you know, so many different things. I can I can learn something that I didn't know. And to me, that the, the, the hopes of what I can gain, the reward is worth way more than the risk. And so, again, like, you know, the way that I define success is like, what, what can I learn? How much more can I learn? How much further can I travel? So to me, like that ability or that chance to learn from a person is worth way more than the risk. That is just poetic, to be honest <laughs> with you. Uh, you were there as well during the COVID-19 pandemic. What was it like when you learned how real that was, how restrictive <laughs> your you know, next unknown amount of time would be? Just talk about being overseas during the pandemic and what that entailed for you. Yeah, man. So um, I remember the moment that I knew that COVID was going to be serious. Uh, so for a while, it was just like, hey, there's this there's this thing that's happening, you know, in China, you know, and um, I actually had a client. I was building out a mobile app for him and he was visiting a friend in Dubai. And I was like, you know, so for me at that point, um, Dubai was a 45 minute flight. Right. Like it was, you know, super cheap. Like we would just go there on the weekends. Right. Like it wasn't a big deal. So I decided you know what? I'm gonna meet y'all over there, man. You know, he's also a Morehouse alum. You know, we went to school together. You know, we were in the Naval ROTC together. So, you know, both of these guys were. So I was like, man, it'd be great. Good time to connect. And so I get to the airport and it is like irregular, like quiet, like not a lot of traffic, you know, and I'm just kind of like, hmm, this is interesting. Like maybe I'm just lucky. So I get into the airport and they're like, oh, yeah, no flights. You know what I mean? Like airport shut down. Right. So I, you know, call my friend. I'm like, yo, um, like, you know, I can't get to Dubai. Like they're not letting any flights into the country. They're also not letting any flights out of the country. And he's like, oh, damn. Like, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to get home. You know, so I'm like, yeah, you might want to check on that. Right. So I go home the following week, the first case of COVID in Bahrain is a bus driver who's taking some kids to school. They immediately shut down all of the schools. They immediately kind of locked down the country, right? You know, restaurants are closed. Basically anywhere, gyms, restaurants, everything is closed. So their response was great to COVID. Once it sort of prolonged and we knew like, okay, it's going to be this way for a while. Then we started trying to figure out, all right, if we're going to be locked down, we might as well just go back home. Right. Like um, and so that's when we started to I started to look for jobs um, stateside. And that's when we decided to come back, because, you know, a, a part of the beauty, I guess, of being in Bahrain is that like the food's really good. Like, you know, if you're abroad, you, you're trying to be in the mix. Right. Like That's why we're over here. Like if I'm going to just sit in the house. I might as well just be home. You know what I'm saying? And so and we couldn't travel. So we were just like, all right, let's come back. So that's when I, you know, I, I had already been in touch with an AWS recruiter. And truthfully, we were enjoying the time so much in Bahrain that we had extended for another two years. And we really weren't supposed to come back until this year, 2022, when my son was going into high school. Right. And we were like, all right, we'll go back and we'll let, you know, Pat Jr., uh, spend his his high school years in America and we'll just stay still. Um, but we just came back early, man. It just didn't make any sense anymore. So but yeah, that's that was the moment I was like, bro, this is about to be serious. Like when they started doing that, I was like, oh, man. And it's actually crazy because I remember just watching the American response and, you know, the whole toilet paper frenzy and all of that. And it was 
crazy watching that from abroad and just like the response and seeing how everything played out. And, you know, two years later, we're still kind of still battling there. Right. Like it's, it's wild. Did you have some re-entry? No. Nah, so we didn't really have any problems there because um, so, you know, again, we were attached to the naval base and we were over there on um, U.S. government visas and all that kind of stuff. And so one of the things that the Navy has is uh, they have their own kind of like airline, right? Like call, they call it the rotator, right? So basically, you know, there's this, there are these planes that go throughout the naval bases, like, you know, so Norfolk to Spain to Italy, right? Then to Bahrain and then Djibouti, right? So essentially that runs all the time. Right. And so um, when we came back, we came back on the rotator. So we didn't have to kind of go through all of the red tape and have reentry problems. But we did have to get tested for covid and all that kind of stuff before we got on the flight. And then along the way, each of these little small airports that we were in, they were all kind of shut down. Like, you know, they kind of had us like, no, you come in here, you stay in this area. Don't you know, don't go in like they kind of had us cordoned off because at that time, you know, it was still, you know, we're traveling internationally in all these places. So each of these countries is also really vigilant about making sure that the people who are kind of transient aren't interacting and then potentially exposing uh, their citizens to the disease. You know what I'm saying? So that's kind of how that went. Wow. What a story. And yeah. I'm sure we could go on. It sounds like it's an experience you would recommend to others. Yeah, man. Um, Changes so- you dramatically. So let's shift gears a little bit here and talk money again, specifically, Mm. you know, what the future could hold. Uh, And this is a question that we ask every single person who comes onto the podcast. Really great responses here, too, especially when they back it up with their rationale behind it, because I always think that's a portal into their cognitive, you know, horsepower, so to speak. Mm. Do you want to run, not own, not found, not start? But do you want to run a billion dollar company? Why or why not? Um, absolutely no. I don't even have to think about that one. While I respect people that want to do that, right? And and definitely, you know, as I kind of have worked at, you know, AWS and then taken on a larger, like a further or farther reaching goal or farther reaching program and role at Google understand the type of thinking and like discipline that it that it takes to do that i just like my freedom man you know what i'm saying like i would i have would i like to have a billion dollars absolutely the ceo of google makes a lot of money right but he's on all the time you know what i mean like he's he's constantly has to be on you know i just don't think i want to live that type of lifestyle man like i sort of see myself being really more of a um like leisurely kind of person right like i'm again like i don't need to attain a lot of things as much as like learn a bunch i'd much rather see myself like traveling the world and doing that on my own terms you know and so yeah the billion dollar company thing i mean who knows right like you know you never maybe i think differently in three to five years because i've seen some more things and like Maybe I identify something that I want to learn that I can only learn by doing that. But currently, the way that I envision my future, I envision my future like more so being like family oriented. And, you know, like I just think you like I just don't see how you could balance running that type of company with also being a good husband and being a good father and those kinds of things, you know, for me. The richness in life that I've that I've experienced has always been related to the the quality of relationships that I have. And so, yeah, I just don't see that, man. I don't just I just don't think it's worth the trouble, honestly. Very transparent, mm. honest, candid answer there. Yeah. Appreciate that. And this is our sort of final question. Uh, you got a lot of stamina, man. We've been going, <laughs> going through this thing for almost two hours here, uh, but it's been immensely valuable. Uh, speaking of value, you may have answered this. Uh, in your own way throughout this couple hours that we've been talking here at your dinner table. But what's the most valuable thing that you do for your customers? And I suppose in many respects, that would be the founders that you invest in. But in terms of your value, what's the most valuable thing that you are bringing 
to your relationships and interaction? I would probably say clarity. What I'm really doing in terms of my business is on the surface, what it looks like we're doing is, you know, we're building applications for people, right? We're doing design work, branding work, you know, on the angel investment side of things, we're giving them money, right? And then maybe answering questions. But I think underneath all of those things, like what you're really doing is you're helping them sort of chart a path, right? Like you're, you know, when we're building applications for people or, you know, we're doing web development work, what we're really doing is we're helping them define what it truly is that they are providing to their customers, right? Um, people often mistake technology for the product itself. And oftentimes that is not the case, right? Like, you know, you're providing a service and technology is the medium through which you provide that service. Um, so I think helping, you know, on the tech peer side, that's my business, right? On the tech peer side of things, like we're building things, but we're building only what needs to be built, right? And many times we're, you know, going back to the what you do versus what you don't do. A lot of times, you know, people will come to us with these big ideas and what we're helping them do is sort of whittle down to what is the thing that they should build, right? Versus, you know, you're coming to us with 20, 30 requirements. What are the five or 10 that actually help your business push forward, right? Or help you to validate even should you go down this path, right? So that's what we're doing there. And I think that on the angel investing side, it's sort of the same thing, right? Like we're helping founders figure out should they go down this path? And if they do, what is the path of least resistance or what is the path that's gonna give us the largest return on investment? And ultimately I'm not making these decisions for them but I'm like a sounding board and I'm offering them a different perspective that they may not think from. Right. So I think that ultimately what I'm providing is clarity. And clearly you have been clear in this <laughs> podcast, uh, man, your hospitality extends beyond just showing the town, really just sitting down here and chopping up, uh, dropping good game in yeah. gyms. Yeah, uh, it, and if you're listening to this right now, take, you know, and retake, go back, rewind, and listen to this because I always find new things when I listen to these mm -hmm. podcast episodes mm -hmm. again and again. And with two hours of content, <laughs> man, I mean, you got to chop that down, man. I mean, obviously, I mean, two hours is a lot, you know what I mean? So I would not listen to, well, I can't say I wouldn't listen to a two hour podcast, but bro, you got to chop some of this down. I know you do, but yeah, hopefully it's valuable, you know, to someone. So thanks for thinking I was important enough. For, or had some type of knowledge to even give. You're being very modest here, you know, but we will uh, see what we do about this because there is quite a bit of content here. We might have to either chop it up or put the extended version elsewhere. Dope. So we'll figure that one out. Uh, so that was the last official question, but we have one more to leave the listeners with. And that's yeah. this. If you have been listening to this right now, uh, maybe you're a founder who is looking for an angel investor to pitch or something like that, or you are another angel who wants to connect with you to share, uh, whether it be deal flow, customers, relationships, or a VC who's looking for somebody downstream or whatever the reason is that you might want to listen a little bit more to what Patrick has to say or reach out, grab 5, 10, 15 minutes of his time. What is the best way that someone should go about reaching out to you, where to go, how to do it, for you to respond to them in a relatively prompt manner? What's going to get your attention and how should they do that? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn, you know what I mean? I'm on Twitter, um, you know, I think that those are probably the best ways. I try to like respond to all the messages I get as long as it's not like pitchy, you know what I'm saying? Like, but even that, if it's something that I may need, I'll do it. But yeah, find me on LinkedIn, you know, just shoot me a message, man. Like I'm around, I'm accessible, you know, I'm not, I'm not like one of those people that's like too busy or too important to answer messages. Like I'm very accessible. So, you know, Patrick Bentley, LinkedIn. Twitter, you know, I'm around. I'm easy to find. So, yeah, hit me up. And hit you up, they should. Uh, <laughs> it's been really gratifying to sit here. I am immensely grateful uh, for this conversation, the hospitality, the whole nine. It was a 
it was a beautiful drive and on the end of it was something even more precious. So thank you for this. Uh, and with that, we will leave you with the final word before we peace out of here. How did I get here in this space is just by being super curious, you know, you know, in spite of me being very talkative, you know, I don't know if I have any like pieces of wisdom or even feel like I should be the one, you know, like I often hesitate to do podcasts and stuff like that because it sort of puts you on this pedestal as being somebody who knows better than others. And I don't like, I feel like I've just kind of failed and kind of fell forward on many different things and have a passion for learning and then sharing what I'm learning with other people. And then kind of letting them decide if that thing is valuable or not. No words of wisdom other than like, keep, keep learning, man. That's been, that's kind of gotten me where I am, wherever that is. Like, and that'll probably be what gets me to the next thing too. Your humility says it all. <laughs> Thank you for your time. And until next time, we bid you adieu.